0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Child poverty, a new study out uh, from the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, shows how child tax credits at the state level can work to reduce it. HPR's Casey Harlow joins us this morning with the details. Good morning.
1: Good morning, yes. So the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy uh, basically created this 50-state analysis uh, to address Child tax credits and how they can impact uh, child poverty, and this was partly inspired by the expansion back in 2021 uh, by the federal child tax credit. It went from $2,000 per child to uh, $3,000 for every child uh, between six and 17, and then $3,600 for uh, children under the age of six for families that may need that extra boost in income. You know that you know they get. Taxed on these uh, dollars, but they get a break either in monthly payments or just like a full uh, refund at the end of the day. And so the institute wanted to find out: Hey, if states wanted to implement such a thing, because a lot of state legislatures are considering something like this, what would it take to cut you know child poverty in by a quarter, by fifty percent, and more? And
0: and, and the state. Lawmakers are getting ready to start the new session next month. Exactly.
1: So the timing is like perfect for this report to come out for state lawmakers to consider. And so uh, New York State is one uh, that is implementing a child tax credit in addition to its earned income tax credit. And for Hawaii, the report found that a $2,000 credit could reduce uh, child poverty by a quarter and, you know, $4,000 could cut it in half. And there are boosts to credits for families with children under six years old, again. Uh, but there are issues with the report. Um, one, it does not take into consideration the tax credits that are already in place at the state level. So a lot of states, and including our own state, um, has maybe four tax credits that uh, families could take uh, can take advantage of. And this is Nicole Wu. Uh, she's a, with the advocacy nonprofit Hawaii Children's Action Network. She's the Research and Economic Policy Director over there. And so she kind of uh, outlines kind of these uh, tax credits.
2: We have a whole slew of tax credits at the state level to help working families, working parents make ends meet. I can think of four off the top of my head. There's the food excise tax credit that helps lower income families get back the GET that they spend on food. There's a low income household renters credit There's a tax credit for child and dependent care expenses, and there's an earned income tax credit, which is based on the federal EITC, which is one of the best anti-poverty tools that the nation has ever seen.
1: And if you recall the last legislative session, there was a huge push for the earned income tax credit, uh, making it fully refundable, which the legislature did pass. However, you know, these are really tough times for families. Uh, you know, uh, we see the effects of inflation happening. We see uh, cost of living going up as well. And so it seemed, I would assume that legislature legislators are most likely wanting to discuss this in the upcoming session to, you know, have some sort of meaningful impact on local families. And again, the legislature last year raised the minimum wage and amended the EITC uh, last session. And so there could be a um, more discussions on this as well, even possibly a couple lawmakers proposing, you know, a child tax credit. Uh, but uh, Nicole Wu said uh, told me that this could uh, be another tax credit, or they could combine all four of the tax credits that uh, she outlined there, and that might be easier for families to uh, check off on their tax returns uh, at the end of the year. Uh, But there are still challenges with these tax credits, right? Uh, I mean, even though with minimum wage uh, increasing, tax credits are another tool to fight um, uh, poverty as well uh, and give families these types of breaks. Might be uh, overlooked by some lawmakers because it gets a little bit complicated, right? We all kind of are thinking about taxes at the end of the day. But uh, another thing as well is the eligibility requirements for these tax credits.
2: One thing we've seen over the last 10, 20 years is that fewer and fewer families are able to get these tax credits at the state level because they keep bumping up against the income eligibility limit, and a lot of those limits haven't been moved in a long time. So if you raise the income limits, then more families can qualify for them.
1: And of course, as always, there is the investment aspect of um, putting towards these programs as well. I mean, um, I believe... Aiden Davis, who's with the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, she uh, basically told me that it would take about maybe between two percent to five percent of the state's total revenues or uh, spending to uh, basically cut child poverty into either twenty-five percent or fifty percent. But whether lawmakers are wanting to, you know, invest that kind of in um, money into these programs, that's a- another entirely.
0: Did that report uh, at all talk about how bad the child poverty rate is in Hawaii?
1: Uh, no, it did not. It basically uh, gave a surface level, top level view down on uh, how things are uh, not and on things uh, and basically just going from there as okay. well.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking to HPR reporter Casey Harlow. Look for the story on our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. (音楽) Thank you. It it takes us to Lanai today for our reality check. Reporter Brittany Light uh, joins us today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So you've got a story about some land on Lanai that uh, Maui County is uh, looking at.
3: Yeah, the state has had a lease for decades now for about 100 undeveloped acres on Lanai. And it has done nothing with that land. It um, was set aside uh, for the state to turn it into an agricultural park with leases for local farmers. But that never happened. So now the county has an opportunity to uh, take over that lease that the state has with kulama Linai, the, the landowner, and uh, you know, see about creating uh, what would be you know, an, an ag park um, to help local farmers.
0: So tell us about the acreage that they're looking at.
3: Yeah, so it's it's 100 undeveloped acres. The lease is from 1994. It's for 55 years. So the county would, in theory, you know, absorb this lease about halfway through. Uh, it's just $100 a year. Uh, the cash, if there is one, is that, you know, the land really would need a lot of work. It would require quite a bit of taxpayer investment. The site, you know, it lacks necessary infrastructure. It has limited water supply. The county would need to fence in the property, pave a road, install windbreak, subdivide the land, and more uh, in order to get an ag park up and running. Uh, But the county does have a brand new um, agriculture department now. So this could be a project for that department
0: And do we know, uh, does Larry Ellison, you know, have uh, any, uh, I don't know, inkling that they might want to use that land for something else at some point?
3: Well, Keiki Pua Dancil, who is Pulama Lanai's senior vice president of government affairs and strategic planning, she told the Maui County Council that, you know, Pulama Lanai doesn't have any plans for that acreage at this point. So, so I, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a chance for the county to make good on this uh, plan that's really been stalled for decades.
0: And, you know, it's kind of a head scratcher because you wonder, gosh, why wouldn't we have moved on this? We just didn't have the money. You know, I don't know what the Ag Department had to say about that.
3: Yeah, well, you know, the, the state Ag Department never actually got uh, ownership of, of the lease uh, as was intended uh, the BLNR, you know, decided, all right, let's give this land to to our ag department, but that transfer, for some reason, was never made. And at this point, um, the state has indicated that they they don't have any plans or desire to to transform that property into an ag park.
0: Yeah, because I don't know if this would be would have been something that the uh, uh, agriculture, you know, development uh, board, the corporation, um, could have looked at. But for whatever reason, it, it's sitting there now, and the county now has designs on it. Yes, yes. Well, what what stands in the way of them uh, uh, moving this along?
3: So I, you know, it's it's a, it's really just um, understanding the lease. Uh, what Palomalinae has said is is we support the county taking this over, but you would be taking over that 1994 lease. We're not going to draw up a new lease. You're just going to take it over. Um, and they've said, you know, you're going to be in default on day one because the state hasn't made good on um, some of the stipulations in that lease. There were timetables to subdivide the land, for example, and the state didn't do that. So, you know, basically they'd be taking over a lease that they're violating on day one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's, it's you know, deciding whether uh, to put the, the taxpayer investment behind this plan or not.
0: Yeah, well, with all the talk about food security, you know, having uh, uh, something else that uh, uh, Lanai residents can 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 look forward to, because not everybody, you know, wants to work on the on the resorts, and uh, you know, they do have sensei uh, uh, sensei ag, uh, but certainly it's another option. Right. Yes. All it right.
3: Could be a, a really great option.
0: Okay. Well, we'll have to see what they do, but thanks so much, Brittany.
3: Thank
0: you. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. Read her story at civilbeat.org.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. For most people, obviously, the World Cup is a TV spectacle. It, It doesn't really matter where it is. But both for Qatar and for the sport itself, the things that have captivated the view in public are really only one aspect of the World Cup. There's a lot more at stake here than just which storylines are unfurling on the pitch.
0: I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times.
4: Beginning this afternoon
5: at 1.30...
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'ina, caring for the land, Outrigger.com.
0: Operation Manong, ever heard of it? Well, it's been around for 50 years, and here to tell us
6: about it is HPR's Jaina Omaya. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this is actually a really cool office. It was originally called Operation Manong, but it actually became the Office of Multicultural Student Services at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And the name change was in 2000, and it kind of reflects the shift from serving Filipino and other immigrant students in Hawaii's public schools, to more expanding to other underrepresented groups at the university. What does Manong mean? is best translated to older brother or cousin in Ilocano. And so that's kind of a nod to these UH students who would go into Hawaii's public schools to kind of tutor and mentor the younger kids, maybe expose them to higher education and their opportunities after high school. So it's actually considered the first UH program to address diversity and access to higher education. Back in the 1970s, it was kind of a big deal. And it was founded by three people, three UH faculty and students. And so they basically realized that when they went to some of the public schools, there's a lot of immigrant students. They were having trouble. Their teachers couldn't always understand them. They were getting bullied by their peers, facing racism, things like that. So they really thought we as UH students and faculty, maybe we can help solve that problem. So they first started out doing tutoring and mentorship of these students. And again, eventually it did expand to other underrepresented groups. So one of the co-founders is Amy. Agbayani. Our listeners have probably heard her name many times. She's a pretty well-known immigrant and civil rights advocate and she actually immigrated from the Philippines to Hawaii many years ago as an adult. She says that the office was initially funded by a federal grant and then after that she had to actually lobby the state legislature every year for funding for the next several years until it finally became a line item in UH's budget.
2: We've been able to Be successful in getting people to not only advocate for it, but actually believe that the interest of the entire state, the interest of the entire university is the same interest as trying to get more underrepresented students to college.
6: And she talks about those students, and those students have actually went on to run the office. So one example is Clement Bautista, and he was a student when he first got involved with Operation Manong. He was working as just a tutor, as a student, and then he eventually became the director, longtime director from 1990 all the way to 2020 when he retired. And so he says that the program participants, they really had high graduation rates, so they tracked these things. About 80 to 90% graduated within four to five years which is a pretty good statistic. Um, They were really proud of that. He also says that as things started to shift, you know, as more UH programs came online to start addressing these inequities, kind of the office itself and the mission had to really pivot. So an example of that is he says that in the 1980s and 1990s, their budget was actually larger than it is in recent years. And so because of that, they've really had to pivot and shift and kind of find other ways of funding.
4: So we did a lot of these things along the way, which nobody else was dealing with. It was mostly on the cultural stuff, you know, ethnic, cultural kind of like divisions. And so we emphasized those things. And then, you know, the other other stuff other people could address. So that, that allowed us to do these things.
6: So it's kind of this constant pivoting of expanding to other underserved groups at the university and in some of the, the public schools. And so after Clement retired, the new person who heads the office is Adrian Guerrero. And she actually was a student with Clement, and they kind of worked with the office together. As a student, she was in charge of recruiting other Filipino students to come to the University of Hawaii. Interesting with her background, too, she says she actually didn't get into UH at first so that's why she went to KCC and then of course she got involved with Operation Monong as a student and then eventually worked for the office with Clement in many different roles for many years. She's one of just two full-time staff and also a handful of student assistants that the office now employs and you know going back to the budgeting I asked her about that she says that They try to do the best with their limited resources. They're able to supplement some money with grants, some community partnerships that kind of help them with that. But you know, she tried to emphasize that she kind of sees the value in an office like this because she benefited from it as a student too.
2: Well, I know one great value is they're part of a support group, not only with us, but with each other. And that is so important that they're part of this community. And they help each other out you know they're they're struggling together you know they study together and then they want to give back
6: yes and so adrian mentioned that some of the programs they offer now are support services they also have tutoring and mentorship programs as well for incoming students and also current students basically the programming is is trying to address students who face educational, social, and economic challenges. So it's really trying to break down those barriers to higher education. One of the programs that started many years ago is still here today. It's called the Transfer Program. So it basically helps community college students kind of transition to UH Mānoa. Also another program that they still have is called the Hawaii Undergraduate Initiative. So it's a free program for incoming students from kind of these underserved communities. And they basically take free summer classes and they learn more about UH before starting school, of course, and they're also assigned these peer mentors and tutors for support. So despite kind of having these limited fewer resources, Adrian says they still try to support students and kind of break down those barriers to so higher whether, education. So
0: whether it's uh, uh, new students coming in from Filipino communities mm-hmm. or uh, Chinese communities or Micronesian communities, it's it really expanded its reach.
6: Yeah, it's kind of all-inclusive now. Of okay,
0: Operation Manong and beyond. <laughs> but thank you so much, Dana.
6: Thank you, Catherine.
0: We've been talking to HPR's Jana Omae. Uh, check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. This week, astronomer Christopher Phillips and HBR's Dave Lawrence share news about a distant star and new galactic water worlds discovered by the Hubble and Spitzer telescopes. Here's your Monday Stargazer.
5: Stargazer time, our weekly look into the vast universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our island skies. As usual, we are thrilled and grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn still in our evening skies after sunset.
7: All three planets are spread out from east to west. The moon this week is passing through its new moon phase, and so conditions will be fantastic for stargazing.
5: Now, Chris, little did everyone know, big movie fan, so he sort of tied in his report this week with the Avatar thing, and apparently he's got news about a couple of water worlds uh, around a distant star. Do I have half of that right? (laughs) You do indeed, yes, (laughs) although I doubt they are as picturesque as Pandora. (laughs) (laughs) A remarkable discovery in the ongoing
7: hunt for alien worlds has been made by astronomers using two space-based telescopes, the mighty Hubble and the equally as impressive Spitzer Infrared Space Telescope. Data gathered by these two giants of space-based astronomy has turned up a very unusual pair of exoplanets orbiting a red dwarf star a mere 218 light-years away from us. This star is known as Kepler-138 and data suggests that these two worlds are mostly composed of water.
5: How do they compare with Earth? The resemblance is passing, I'm afraid. One of
7: these worlds is much larger than our own planet, a type of world we call a super-Earth. That
5: means they're basically a bit more massive. What they do seem to share with us, though, is the presence of liquid water. And then weigh that in on the uh, implications for potential life. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It raises the question of whether they are habitable or not. And the presence of liquid
7: water on the surface is definitely a big plus in that department.
5: And it's not like the water that we usually hear about from you that looks like water, but it's filled with something else?
7: (laughs) Well, there is a catch with one of these planets. The larger of these worlds may have a thick atmosphere of water vapor with liquid water beneath. However, that water may be under high pressure, so nothing like we have here on the Earth. However, the smaller planet is more similar to Mars in its stature, and so liquid water on the surface could be a possibility. And in that case, it could very well be similar to Earth. Got to bring the boards waxing up.
5: Oh, (laughs) yeah. You do surf, right, Chris? I tried. (laughs) (laughs) Well, You'll be surfing on that planet for sure. It is Christopher Phillips and another exciting Stargazer Report. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi,
4: architects for the Kaka'ako Innovation Block, housing the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation's Entrepreneur Sandbox. FerraroChoi.com
0: This week, we are sharing seaweed stories as this year marks the year of the limu. And as we close out 2022, we spotlight a partnership between Hawaii Pacific University and community groups who are in effect our limu guardians. HPU's Oceanic Institute is best known for its research uh, on fish and shrimp. Sean Moss is the director there.
8: But we're going to take water from the mullet pond and pump it into a 37-square-meter raceway, which will then feed into the different limu tanks. And we're going to assess biofiltration capacity of the limu and growth rates of the limu. And we're going to try and find limu that can effectively clean up the effluent discharge from either a fish pond, a shrimp pond, or a moi pond, and then grow the limu as a secondary cash crop or for outplanting by the Waimanalu Limu Hui. Now, the Oceanic
0: Institute just narrated a federal grant to see if seaweed can help filter the fisheries water, then, in turn, use that seaweed to help fish ponds bolster their ecosystems. Sean Moss has tapped former HPU graduate Wally Ito to work with the community groups on the project. Here's Moss.
8: So, the grant is funded by National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration through a competitive grant. And the goal of the grant is to try and assess the efficacy of using LIMU different endemic species of limu as a biofilter to help clean up aquaculture effluent from shrimp and fish farms here on Oahu and neighbor islands. So the, the research goals are to run organically rich effluent from fish and shrimp ponds across a bed of different species of limu. and. And assess two things. One, how good are they at filtering out nitrogen and phosphorus from the effluent? And how, how effective is the effluent as a growth medium to grow limu? So we'll make those assessments. And then what we'll do with the limu is we're going to do several things with it. One will provide it to Waimanalo Limuhui, a local community organization that grows and collects and outplants limu into the local coastal environment. So we'll provide Waimanalo Limuhui with the limu that we culture through this project. Now, limu in the wild, a lot of populations have been decimated for a variety of reasons. And LIMU provides very important ecosystem functions. They provide habitat for marine life, they provide food, they soak up dissolved nutrients, including carbon dioxide, so they're a good sequester of carbon. Um, so they provide all of the, these very important ecosystem functions. And through our project and hopefully the scaling up of our results to commercial scale, we'll be able to provide a readily available source of LIMU for both outplanting and for direct uh, human consumption because, as we know, limu is a very important food here in Hawaii.
0: So besides the Waimanalo Limuhui, then who else do you think might benefit from this?
8: So we have another community partner in addition to Waimanalo Limuhui, and that's Paipai Oheia, who run the Heia Fish Pond here in Kaneohe. We're going to be working with Kalii out there to see if we can grow limu In the Hawaiian fish ponds not from a fed aquaculture system like a fish or shrimp pond but in situ in the environment of the fish pond and can we design a system that accommodates different endemic limu species that grow well in the unique environment of Hawaiian fish ponds and the limu grown in fish ponds provide again ecosystem services within the fish pond and as a secondary cash crop for the fish pond operators this is our first foray into limu aqua Culture. We do have uh, some small-scale research. One of the co-PIs on this project is Dr. Carrie Jones at Hawaii Pacific University in the Marine Sciences Department. She's had some students doing small-scale research studies, um, but not. we don't grow limu on a large scale, and that's why we're looking to Wally to help bring in the content expertise to help us design and manage and grow the limu.
0: And so what's involved in the scale-up? I mean, will the money go toward actually constructing the tanks.
8: So the grant funds will be used to produce the shrimp and fish from which we'll get the effluent. The monies will be used to design and develop Limu culture systems and water delivery systems, effluent delivery systems, and then uh, we have some money budgeted for HPU graduate students to actually monitor the growth of the Limu, and very importantly, monitor nutrients coming in versus nutrients coming out of the Limu tanks to assess the biofiltration capacity of the Limu, so it will be used to fund student work.
0: What's the timetable?
8: So the grant is for one year, and so we have 12 months to execute the, the scientific scope of work. At the end, we're gonna hold a workshop with interested stakeholders here at OI, so the stakeholders will largely come from Oahu. At that meeting, we'll share our research results and try to provide any guidance we can on how aquafarmers can adopt our system to help clean up their effluent and grow limo.
0: We'll- this then be the start of additional Pipelines of funding to be able to then grow this up even more.
8: Yes, I, that's a great question. We we hope so. As as we all know, uh, early January, Governor Ige declared 2022 as the year of the limu. So we're hoping this gives uh, a statewide attention to the importance of limu. Something that Wally's been working on his entire professional life. Uh, he was instrumental in in bringing uh, limu to the attention of of the state government, and hopefully this will this will provide. Uh, a catalyst for not only future research into Limu aquaculture, but commercial scale-up of Limu culture that provides both food and medicine to local communities, as well as outplanting to provide ecosystem services.
0: And Wally Ito, who the community calls Uncle Wally, shared that... Growing up as a spear fisherman, he never imagined becoming a limu lover. Seaweed just seemed to get in the way of fish and lobsters. But like the saying, take care of the land, and it'll take care of you. The same could be said for limu. Take care of the limu and you take care of the fish. Here's Uncle Wally.
9: The whole answer to restoration of fishery is from the bottom up. Restore our limu, bring back our limu. And if every trophic level above that will just naturally get better and produce more. For years, we've been talking or thinking about the integration of fish and limu in aquaculture. So, when this opportunity came up, oh, I'm so happy, you know, just just things that I've been thinking about for a long time.
0: What types of limu are we going to be working on with this project?
9: Okay, we've identified several already that will do well or do in our tanks. And the main one and probably the most popular limu for us in Hawaii is the OGO, or Gracilaria pavispora. Recently, we've been working with Huluhuluvaina, Gratilupia filicina, and we're finding that it does really well in our aquaculture tanks. Other limu would be Lepeahina, Palamina formosa.
0: For those of us who are not familiar with these scientific names, uh, are we talking about red seaweed, brown seaweed, green seaweed? So
9: most of the ones I've named so far are red. We're also planning to use a green palahalaha.
0: There are folks that are working on fish ponds on so many different islands on Moloka'i, you know, just, uh, you know, here on Oahu. And they really have done a remarkable job when you see the restoration that's, that's been going on. But they just need that little extra oomph, I guess.
9: I'm pretty excited about this entire project, but another exciting thing for me is the, the partnership with heia Fish Pond. Well, many years ago, I did a preliminary study of growing or go in the fish pond and there were a lot of lessons learned we weren't very successful but the conditions have changed yeah, the He'i'o fish pond crew they've done so much to restore the fish pond so the environmental factors have changed and so it's kind of like repeat of the effort this was in 2005 2006 so this is like a repeat of the effort with a lot better conditions and a lot more knowledge we've learned a lot since then so for me, the biggest factor of our, I wouldn't call it failure, but the biggest factor for our not being able to be successful in 2006 was those of us that were here in Hawaii at that time. Remember the 40 days of big rain. And that, so, that dropped the salinity in a fish pond down to five parts per thousand, sometimes even lower. And that's not good for, that's not good for the, the limu that we are trying to grow at that time. But like I said, we, we've learned a lot since then, and there are some Limu that can handle lower salinity, so that's what we're hoping to look at and discover.
0: And you know, there is this movement to kind of go back and, and tap the indigenous knowledge about managing our resources, because we've done a good job of destroying a lot of, of good resources, and so I see that, that there is, I think, political will now. And what worked back then, you know, can work again.
9: I recently retired from Kua, Kua Ulu Awamo, as the Limuhui coordinator, and that's what Kua has been advocating for for many, many years. The answers to our environmental issues, many of the answers can be found in what our Hawaiian ancestors knew and practiced. Part of the work, a big part of our work has been to create awareness and you know, create awareness within in our decision makers, in our city planners, city state planners, architects, developers, engineers, to understand that we are an island and understand that the Ahupo, our system of resource management was, to me, was magical in the past. And we've, we've moved so far away from that. AND IF WE CAN GO BACK TO THE OLD HAWAIIAN WAY OF RESOURCE MANAGEMENT, THEN, um, YOU KNOW, WE CAN BRING BACK A LOT OF OUR RESOURCES.
0: LITTLE DID YOU KNOW WHEN YOU WERE AT THE HATCHERY THAT LIMU COULD BE PART OF THAT WAY OF BRINGING IT BACK?
9: YEAH. AND SO, IT WAS A BIG PART OF MY LIMU KNOWLEDGE COMES FROM UNCLE HENRY, UNCLE HENRY CHANG WHO TAUGHT A LOT ABOUT LIMU, BUT HE ALSO DID LIMU RESTORATION effort in EVER BEACH. I was fortunate enough to have worked with him since 2005 until his passing in 2015 to do Limu outreach, Limu education and awareness. Learned a lot about that and we try to continue his work till today.
0: Are they doing anything in EVA that I should know about?
9: As far as Limu restoration, no, Uncle Henry did a, almost, a, Uncle Henry and other Kupuna started the EVA Limu project. And to do, uh, it, was, it was a two prong approach in Limu restoration, one was actually physically trying to plant Limu out in a place where it was used to be known as the House of Limu. Many, many people, even if they're not from Ever Beach, yeah, my generation or older, if, you know, when we talk about Limu, wherever parts of the island they come from, when we talk about Limu and harvesting Limu, they always, we always hear, yeah, yeah how, well, it was known as Haubush, but they always talk about Haubush, how, how plenty Limu had over there, yeah. A big part of what the Eva Limu project is doing in Oneula today is to Kilo. It's important for us to go often to watch the Limu. There's still rich places with a rich bed of Limu on the Oneula shoreline. Uh, So we go as often as we can. We take a group of people and use it as a teaching tool, but also, but mainly to continue to observe. And in the old Hawaiian style, yeah, you got a kilo. You don't, you cannot manage what you don't know, and the way to know it is to be there. You cannot learn; it's so difficult to learn through books, through storytelling. The best way to learn about your resources to be there, being in a, be in the trenches.
0: And so, will any of that limo that's out there ever be somehow used in in this project?
9: Possibly. We have sources of. Limu that we rely on now, there has been a building interest in other communities who are interested in learning about the limu in their place, and and you know it's a sad story that limu has taken a backseat for maybe three, at least three generations. In that three generations, we've lost a lot of knowledge, and. To the point where communities are asking us to come to their place and to to share to share what we know. But for us, it's a two-way sharing. So we've gone to communities and talk and walk with community members. The, the hope is that something that's well, at least in my mind, that's missing is the education system. And you know, when we talk about creating awareness in our legislators, and it, it starts with the lack of curriculum or resource management curriculum from from the beginning. And if we can spark an interest in kids from the elementary school and create awareness in, in them, then the hope is that that awareness and interest would carry on through and possibly, you know, move on to careers in resource management, in aquaculture. And so that's one of the big hopes that for me that will come out of this, that we start educating more people.
0: Uncle Wally Ito also has a long relationship with the state's Anuinui Hatchery, which to this day provides limo to community groups. And tomorrow we take you out to Waimanalo to learn more about the limuhui and the work they do to restore a turtle pond and uh, work with the limo patches along the windward O'ahu coast.
4: Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the Outrigger Waikiki. Vocalist Paula Funga performs her show, Home for the Holidays, in two sets nightly this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com.
3: You have the stuffy head, congestion, maybe a bit of a cough and a fever, but do you have the flu, COVID, RSV, or just a cold? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about how to know the difference and when to call your doctor. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering an executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu.
0: We often hear that 85% of the food consumed on our islands is imported. Many, many are seeking to change that, but to consume local involves changing our palate and educating ourselves about the journey of our food. Ashley Watts is hoping to contribute to that change. She's the owner of the fishery, Local ear She calls herself a fishmonger, a term originating in the 13th century, meaning someone who sells fish for food. The conversation Stephanie Hahn got the chance to speak to Watts about fish and about owning a business committed to sustainability and community building.
10: We're standing outside of an amazing mural. This is an homage to the yellow submarine, am I correct?
11: Yes, yeah, so we have a storage area outside and we painted the mural and then my friend also wanted to paint the door. And so I decided to go with a submarine theme since it was outside of a, a mural painted with fish and we had the door painted gray and then I decided that we needed to paint it yellow, like the yellow submarine from the Beatles song. The storefront to
10: Eas Seafood off of Wai Lai Avenue captures the spirit of the business. Friendly, approachable, and creative. Inside, past the chalkboard listing the fish and fish products, it's a community kitchen, a hub shared with a few local food businesses. Originally from Panama, Florida, Watts explained how she entered the seafood industry and her business philosophy.
11: I have been a marine biologist basically my whole life. I've always been interested in the ocean and everything about the ocean. I came out to Hawaii as a longline fisheries observer with NOAA. Before that, I was a marine mammal observer in the Gulf of Mexico. I came out here to do the fisheries observing and I did that for about six years and then I have been running local EA for about six years. Moving from marine biology to the food business, so give me
10: the connection, the story here.
11: Okay, so I've always been really connected to my food. I grew up with family who grew their food. My grandpa gardened, we raised citrus, he raised cattle, we hunted and fished. We always knew what we were eating pretty much, and so that's one reason why I like to connect people to not only the story of their seafood, but to other food producers. So at Local Ea, we're, we're not only promoting that you know the story of your seafood, but that you also support other local food producers as well. Where does Local Ea, where do you get your fish? At Local EO we get our fish directly from the fishermen, mind you they bring it to us, we pick it up from them, we don't get it from the auction or any other retailer, we get it directly from the fishermen. That's in order for us to get fresher fish to the community's tables as well as to provide the fishermen with a fair wage. So at the auction they dictate the price and at Local EO we pay a fair wage consistent year round to what the fishermen think is fair
10: you're a woman in this industry, so tell me a little bit about this. This is a bit unusual. Are there other Fisher women like yourself involved?
11: Yes, I am a woman in a man's industry. That is for sure. Um, It took me a while to gain the respect of the men but I think the fact that I am loyal and I have maintained those relationships and that I'm fair to the guys they really appreciate that and there are a few other fisher women that I like to highlight and showcase as well. One of my friends Jess is the owner-operator of a local meat company called Forage and she's a fisher woman and she learned how to fish with a lady named Tasha and then we have a few other fisherwomen that we get fish from. What's your background here from marine biology to food? I think this is so fascinating. So I learned how to cook from my grandma. I learned from a very young age just watching her cook how to prepare certain things southern style because we are from the south so I learned a lot of my cooking from her and then also I love to learn from every person I come in contact with and I love food and so Most all of my friends have some connection to food, and I'm always learning different preparations and techniques from them. I'm lucky to call Chef Ed Kenny, one of my really good friends, and I learned a lot from him. I always have questions for him and ask him things. But we did always grow up using all of the animal and trying to use all of what we eat, and I think, now these days we forget that, but we're going back to that here at local Ea because we take all of the fish parts and we make stock and we sell the stock and then we take the stock and we make soups out of the fish and the local vegetables and the stock. And then we also use all of our scraps to make pet treats, which are just, just the fish, nothing added. We just dehydrate that. So I just kind of learned along the way as I go, And then we also learned some preparations and techniques from the fishermen. That's kind of where I learned how to smoke the fish and dry the aku and all of those kind of things. Tell me a little bit about the people of Hawaii and how they do eat fish. We eat a lot of
10: canned fish here too. And I didn't know if you wanted to comment about something like that.
11: I think here in Hawaii, I really love that people appreciate fish, but I think a lot of times they're not so much tricked, but just, kind of fooled in a way to think that some fish is local when it's not and they take for granted that when they're eating fish they just assume that it's local and so i think the convenience factor plays a part in people eating canned fish and other kind of fish like that so we're doing our best to develop different products that are easy to eat like those things we do a smoked fish and then we do a burger. And then eventually we are looking into starting a canning operation in order to help with the, the love for fish and just to have it throughout the year because canning is a way to sustainably get the supply when you have enough supply for the times that when you don't have a lot of fish
10: coming in. Watts is a one woman show, but she does get plenty of help. Among them, a backup band of interns, a customer who helps out because he believes in the mission, and a fishmonger's mate, which I surmise is a bit like a first mate.
8: Hi, my name is Jake Franco, and I'm a fishmonger's mate here at Local Ea. So far, it's been a great experience. I've been learning a lot about the local seafood industry and been working on my knife skills, and been part of a really great community here in Kamuki. I'm doing a uh, natural resource management degree, so we're doing a lot of wildlife management and a lot of work in class with looking at fish stocks and things like that, so it's fun to see the parallels.
10: While customers subscribe to Watt's fish service, she also supplies restaurants and has a presence at various farmers markets. She says she's dedicated to meeting needs of busy lives and helping to shift palates by introducing different kinds of fish to her clients. When does the fish come in and
11: what kind of fish are you promoting? So we get fish pretty much every day of the week. We're only open for sales three days a week at the shop, and then we also have our CSA service, and we deliver wholesale to a couple restaurants like FET in Chinatown, La Vie in Waikiki, as well as Mud Hen Water and Town Superette, where our kitchen is. So we get fish every day of the week directly from the fishermen. And then we like to promote the Ta'ape, which is an invasive species, and we also like to promote Aku, which is a tuna that's just as high quality as ahi but it's often time looked over because it's a smaller fish and the fishermen haven't historically taken as good care of it anymore because ahi was so popularized but we're really into promoting sashimi grade Aku and we have several customers who grew up eating the Aku way before ahi was popular and they're really appreciative that we have the Aku and then we also like to promote eating the parts of the fish so the bones and the kama and all of those things we like to offer as well so tell me a little
10: about some of the eating habits What you've noticed and people's shift, if there's any, about fishing over the years since you've been here, you've been here 16 years,
11: right? I have noticed that there has been a trend to eat more poke and more ahi. We are trying to get people to realize that traditionally poke is made with any kind of fish. Basically means to chop is what poke means. So you can chop up pretty much anything and make poke. So the poke craze promoting ahi we're trying to get away from. Just because we don't want people to eat one fish all of the time anyway, we want people to eat whatever's available that the ocean provides. And so we're teaching people to chop up marlin and make poke or chop up Aku or Ahi or Mahi Mahi or Ono, any of the fish that they like to enjoy you can pretty much make poke out of and so we're trying to get people to do that. We've been lucky to see an increase in people appreciating and eating more ta'ape as well. And ta'ape is the invasive snapper that we like to promote. We've gotten several chefs on board with promoting it as well. And people just had no idea that it was the same type of fish, the white flaky snapper, as other things they like to eat, like opakapaka and onaga and other things. They're all in the same family. It's just the ta'ape was introduced because all of those other fish were getting overfished. And the unfortunate thing is that they're colored yellow not red, and so people don't tend to gravitate to eating them here, and so after we've explained to them and had other people show and share that the ta'ape is a good-eating fish, we've had a lot of increase in people eating it.
10: Yeah, it was really good. I grilled it. (laughs) Yeah, so tell me a little bit about this invasive species fish. So
11: how does fish get
10: introduced, and why?
11: Fish come over either on purpose or not on purpose. The not on purpose is usually in a fish's hole or either an aquarium fish that gets released or something like that. If the fish is introduced on purpose like the Ta'ape was, it was actually introduced by the state. And so they have a large quantity of fish that they release into the wild. And the thing about Ta'ape is it doesn't have any natural predators because it was introduced here. And so it's one reason why they've been able to populate and grow as much as they have. And so we encourage the fishermen to keep all sizes of the ta'ape even the really small ones and so we're trying to come up with different products like a fish sauce and other things in order to be able to use even the really small ones that are kind of humbug to to clean but you can deep fry and eat the whole thing it's really good too. Just to know what you're eating and where it comes from makes a really big difference no matter what you eat and also just to try to support the local food producers as much as you can I think those are two really important things that we try to promote here at Local EA.
10: At the heart of Local EA is Watt's belief that the foundation of all business is community and doing right by the environment. She believes that drives loyalty and the spirit of her endeavor. My name is Abby. I've been living in Hawaii for almost 10 years and I've been getting fresh fish from Ashley for almost five, I think. The part I like is that it's local fish I get it every week. And I know that it's supporting local fishermen and it's supporting the local food movement in Hawaii. So that is one thing that I like about it. And the quality is always great. And what kind of fish do you like to buy, Abigail? Always the ahi, and I like the um, mahi. So she knows (laughs) to save me mahi when she gets a good catch. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, okay, so I want to buy some fish too. I have so, ahi, ahi, or aku? Oh, I'll have some aku, and you know what I really liked was your fish stock. That was great. Okay. Um, so I want some fish stock, and I'll take some fish gumbo. That would be good. I'll have a quart, okay. a fish gumbo. And
11: then the aku, you want a pound? A half yeah, pound? A pound. I'll have a pound. Okay. alright
10: Anything else that you want to add maybe to any aspiring women fishermen out there, some
11: young women? I think just to do whatever you feel driven to do. And, and my mom always told me that I could do anything. And so I kind of took that to heart. And, and I think that that's true about whatever you're doing as long as you're doing it for a good purpose and with a good mindset that you can do whatever you feel you need to do.
0: That was Ashley Watts, fishmonger and owner of Local Ea. She was talking with HPR Stephanie Hahn about building community through good business practice. <music> and that is it for us today. Tomorrow, Limu Week continues as we take you out to Waimanalo and learn about seaweed restoration along the coast. Have a story idea to share? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. If you missed something and want to listen back, you can find The Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. It's on our website, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of The Conversation.